The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. What's your pitch, General? I'll tell you. Wait a minute. I think I can put this together myself. You're a satellite rocket man. You crusaded yourself right out of the service. Then you kept on crusading. Finally, they took up the car bridge project. It fizzled. Now, following the course of old established habit, you'd like to drop it in my lap. Well, I love you, General. But I'm just a plain manufacturer, not the Department of Defense. The answer's no. Then, oh, no. Don't like that cigar. We're going to lunch. Who said you were anything but a manufacturer? That's why I came to you. Look, General, building rocket satellites is big stuff. I couldn't begin to finance one I'm of those. I'm not asking you to rebuild the satellite. Cargrave spent four years on that project. That rocket could have and should have done everything we anticipated. There's no time nor need to repeat that experiment. Well, what in blazes are you driving at now? The moon. Okay. I listen. Tell me. I did tell you. The next rocket we build is going to the moon. Let's go to lunch. I'm serious, Jim. Oh, you can't be. It's too fantastic. The moon? Impossible. Even with an atomic energy engine, exhaust velocity potential of 30,000 feet a second, what? thrust of 3 million pounds. Why, even Jess Spewley's atomic engine has only limited use. He hasn't come close to designing a mobile unit. Cargraves has spent the past two years on it. He's not only designed it, he's tested it. His scale model ran for an hour and 23 minutes before it blew up. I saw it, Jim. Good grief, man, and the government hasn't taken that over? It's peacetime, Jim. The government isn't making that kind of appropriations. Well, they'll need the rocket one of these days, and if it's not ready, the government will do the job. And they'll turn to you, to private industry, to do it. Government always does that when it gets in a jam. It has to. This time, I figured we might be ready for the government. Preparedness isn't all military, Jim. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, March 26, 2009. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and boy, what a week it's been. Thanks for joining us on our program today where we will be discussing, among other things, the bailout of CBC. And, uh, you know, is it worth doing or can we say there's a hole in the bucket, dear Liza? Also, the AIG bonus anger that we're hearing and seeing all over the place. Got a lot of stuff on that and I think AIG should actually stand for anger over intervention of government, though most people don't understand that yet. And again, on another subject, we want to talk about uh, the economy just in general and basically why the economy is a, such a bloody mess, mainly because we're bleeding the patient. But first, and by the way, 519-661-3600 is a number you can call if you want to join in on the conversation today. Our email is justrightchrw at gmail.com. And as you heard just a little while ago, you can catch up on all of CHRW programming on chrwradio.com. And for a complete archive of this show, you can go to www.justrightmedia.org. 
And by the way, that last one will get you to all the rest as well, just so you know. But first, the state of science, or should I say the science of state, because when you get science and politics involved, then things get blinded, not by science, but by politics. India became the sixth country to land on the moon this past November 15, 2008. According to the London Free Press article of that day, the moon landing was part of India's two-year mission aimed at laying groundwork for further Indian space expeditions. They're not particularly interested in the moon's surface, according to this article, but in what lies beneath the surface for future exploitation, of course. Meanwhile, China is in the process of building its own space station with its launching of the Shenzhou 7 mission back in September of last year. And of course, looking back, the United States first landed a man on the moon. By the way, those other, that first mission to the moon wasn't manned, of course. That was an unmanned mission. But the U.S. first landed a man on the moon back in 1969 and sent a number of Apollo missions there and back subsequently. But anyone born after the Apollo missions has never actually lived to see a man on the moon again in terms of, you know, live. Now, if you heard that, uh, and by the way, many have argued that we would already be flying to the moon in return had uh, John F. Kennedy not poured billions of American dollars into the NASA space program, given that experiments in the 1950s or 50s and 60s were uh, going on with the X-15 that was about to take the U.S. into space via another route, one more natural to us, you know, take off and land like a plane, but we gave that one up. And if you heard that uh, clip at the opening of the show, by the way, that was from George Pal, director George Pal's Destination Moon, uh, which was released way back in the 1950s and for quite a while became the 2001, if you want to call it that, of its time. One of the first uh, science fiction shows that uh, actually depicted a moon landing very close to what it to what it was really like. No, fancy, no no aliens running around. The moonscape was fantastic. It's in living color. Still stands up to this day. And of course, uh, with the script and the, being based on a book by Robert Heinlein, there's a lot of commentary in that show about government getting involved with science. In fact, there's a really funny scene in the movie where they have to take off uh, in the rocket before the government inspector catches up with them to uh, give them a cease and desist order. It's kind of funny. But that's uh, actually what brought this up. I got a, le- a letter from listener Andy. Now, this is going back November 8th, and I'm not going to uh, you know, hide who he is. This is Andy um, Jansen, who was a guest on our show back in July 3rd. He's the entrepreneur inventor and uh, science and tech futurist we had on. Great show. I know a lot of people have been still listening to it. But he sent along this interesting letter, and I think it's about time I responded to it. I know I, I leave these things for months, but I only get one show a week, and I have to wait for the appropriate moment in which to fit them. And I think that moment has arrived, as you'll see momentarily. But here's what Andy wrote to me. He says, I want to pass this along to you. And he, I guess he was talking to some friends, and he says, you know, that we suggested that our government offer a prize or a bounty for anyone who would develop a process or method that would be commercially viable to separate the hydrogen and oxygen elements from water and store it for everyone's use. Then the pure hydrogen could be used as fuel. Our government would pay anyone who would develop such a process $10 billion or even $50 billion, and then we can donate the process to the free market domain. Imagine what would happen if something like this could be developed. I believe the more you think about it, the more you'll agree this would be one of the most profound and positive revolutions in the world since the invention of the printing press. 
Of course, the separation of hydrogen and oxygen from water can be achieved now, but the cost prohibits it from being commercially viable at this point. Furthermore, it now takes more energy to separate the hydrogen and oxygen molecules than is gained by eventually burning the hydrogen when using fossil fuel energy to create the hydrogen. But the implications from this discovery would be far-reaching and even earth-shaking. It could furnish cheap and viable energy that would come from an inexhaustible source. It would burn cleanly with the only waste product being water vapor. Hydrogen-burning automobiles and other vehicles would soon be commonplace with inestimable, inestimable benefits to the environment. Electricity could be generated from this source of power, which would greatly reduce or over time even eliminate our reliance upon the burning of coal with all of the pollutants that come with that process. And the list would be advances in wind and solar and other green energies to go on and on. Also, and most importantly, this development could change the face of local and world politics forever. Our country would no longer be reliant upon governments in the Middle East and other corrupt and unsavory governments around the world for their oil. The present status quo seriously strengthens them and weakens us, but this would be forever changed. Further positive results would be both to increase funds available for world trade, which would tend to strengthen both wealthy and poor countries alike, and to allow us to support world civil liberties and rights for the downtrodden without having politically to kowtow to so many repressive despots. Hydrogen burning plants could be installed all around the world that would convert seawater into fresh water. And this could allow presently arid regions to raise crops to feed their own people. So this new process in itself could seriously reduce tensions in many countries of the world. In fact, it could even have some beneficial influence on the tinderbox of the world, which is Israel and Palestine. Another result would be the reduced competition for water between farmers and migrating fish, etc. Furthermore, Consider the effect this development would have upon our balance of payments problem since we would no longer be exporting billions of dollars per year to the Middle East and elsewhere for oil. This could help our country's economy and those of most of the other nations to explode into unheard of productivity. Now I agree that this suggestion does some violence to my libertarian principles of a smaller and less dominant government, as well as the principle of simply allowing the marketplace to devote the necessary capital to meritorious projects. In most circumstances, rewards in the marketplace are sufficient to promote needed advances. Necessity is the mother of invention. But so far, even though the discovery of such a process would indisputably bring untold wealth to the discoverer, this viable process still remains elusive. So our government's offering a large incentive or bounty might just do the trick, and providing this process for free to the world would allow new further developments and products to be generated more quickly. So I think a compromise in my personal philosophy would be acceptable. Will our government put such a plan into operation? Maybe so, maybe not. But a private Manhattan Project-style program to develop plentiful, inexpensive, and clean burning fuel would be one of the best things our governments could do with our money. So I think we should give it a try. What do you think, asks Andy. I, at first, I didn't know what to think in terms of the science of it, because if you're still looking for a discovery of something, I don't think that's something you want to get the government in on at all. And I think I'm going to try and prove that point to you. But more important than your dream of a hydrogen-based economy, uh, which I, I can perfectly share. I haven't got a problem with that at all. That's why you were on the show. I thought it was great to hear about it. And, and, and we're already heading in that direction. But I'm very concerned at your conclusion that a compromise on principle will get you what you want. 
Because once you abandon, and, and, and you know, try that in science sometime. Compromise on the principle of gravity. Compromise on the principles necessary that, to separate hydrogen from oxygen and water. No, I don't really care about the principles. I'm going to, you know, just put them aside today. That, that means you're not too sure about either your principles or about the application of them. But once you abandon valid objective principles, everything you're working for will be for naught. If you've been listening to my past several shows on how this process of compromising principles has utterly destroyed conservatism in Canada's conservative parties, um, you know, then maybe that's a lesson to be, to, to be listened to. And certainly your dream of a hydrogen-based economy I, I share, but to ask the government to fund such research will end the dream more likely than it will promote it. Now, the idea of offering a prize or bounty paid for government paid by government after the success of some field of research has already been, that, that's been tried by Ronald Reagan with respect to cancer research funding. And of course now U.S. President Obama has promised a cure for cancer, which you'll hear about in an upcoming audio clip, which by itself alone uh, would undermine your field of research. Because I'm sure that as a political entity, governments behave, you know, only politically. Between a cure for cancer in a hydrogen fuel-based economy, I'm sure the overwhelming majority of voters would prefer their tax dollars to go to a cure for cancer, even though the investment may be counterproductive and never lead to a cure. But being a scientist type, and I think some of us are, I know that certainly a person like yourself, Andy, the, the theory has to always be tested in practice. And, and in, in this case, I guess the question is, do the principles of freedom and capitalism coincide with positive science and technology results in practice? And the answer is yes. The other question is, do the principles behind government financial support of science and technology coincide with positive results in practice? And the answer is no, despite everything you're hearing in the media. And to make the point for all of us, I think I'm going to rely on a couple of articles I pulled out of the National Post. And I regret I haven't read this book myself yet, the one that they are uh, recommending here. And it's called Sex, Science, and Profits, authored by Terence Keeley, biochemist, vice-chancellor of the University of Buckingham in Britain. And the first time I heard about this book was on October 28th in the National Post when Karen Selleck, who was also a guest on this show, uh, had an editorial called Science Doesn't Need Government Help. And she refers to this book, Sex, Science, and Profits, which is one of two articles, by the way, that I dug up in the Post about this book. And I think it's worth noting just what they said about it. Now, according to Keeley, the author of the book, and now this is Karen Selleck speaking, quote, the notion that science needs government subsidies in order to advance is not merely benignly mistaken, but downright harmful. International comparisons show a clear positive correlation between a country's research and development expenditures and its economic growth rate. However, when you refine the figures further, a more nuanced picture emerges. Business-produced R&D is what actually drives economic growth. Publicly financed R&D, on the other hand, correlates negatively with growth because government-funded projects crowd out privately funded endeavors. Keeley's book provides empirical evidence both ancient and modern to support his thesis. In the 17th and 18th centuries, for instance, English governments refused to fund science and technology while French governments, by contrast, funded myriad research laboratories, science journals, and educational institutions. But it was in England that the Industrial Revolution flourished, pouring forth inventions that increased immeasurably the well-being of English citizens and leaving France in the dust. 
This is not surprising. It is absurd for the government to extract money from taxpayers, including corporations whom it expects to conduct research and development, then dole it out again to those same corporations in order to promote R&D, all while deducting, of course, the bureaucratic costs of shuffling the money. It's like giving a blood transfusion from a patient's left arm into his right arm and spilling half the blood along the way. You'll notice how this, uh, this theme of blood in the economy comes up a lot today. But she says, Keeley debunks also the myth that MITI, Japan's famous Ministry of International Trade and Industry, was behind that country's meteoric post-war rise to prosperity, noting that MITI has opposed the development of the very areas where Japan had been most successful, cars, electronics, and cameras. As for universities, Keeley points out that after Margaret Thatcher cut British universities' research subsidies in the early 1980s, industry and medical charities doubled their financing for university-produced science and soon more than made up the shortfall. Now here's another article. That was Karen Selleck. Here's, here's one uh, entitled, uh, more currently, January 7th, 09, by Peter Foster, Why State Research and Development Flops, who again, cites and promotes the book Sex, Science, and Profits by Terence Keeley. And here is Peter Foster's uh, impression of the book. He says, quote, It provides a devastating critique of states' failure to fund economically useful knowledge and suggests that all spending on technologies of the future is likely to wind up down the drain. Professor Keeley is not promoting some off-the-wall right-wing economic theory. You see, I wonder why he goes out of his way to say that, because yes, he is. Why would, why would you want to divorce reality from right-wing when you're a right-winger yourself? I don't understand that, but nevertheless. Professor Keeley provides the history and psychology behind this inconvenient truth and sets out to explode the pervasive notion first propounded by the prototypical 17th century English policy wonk, Sir Francis Bacon, that science is a public good, that needs to be promoted by governments. By the way, Francis Bacon is also the guy who said, nature, to be commanded, must be obeyed. But um, Foster goes on here. In a sweeping analysis, Professor Keeley notes that advances in both science and technology have, from the steam engine to radio astronomy, come overwhelmingly from the private sector. Powerful states, quote-unquote, from Egypt through China to modern Russia, have held up technological advances rather than promoted them. The vast U.S. expenditure on research in the wake of the Sputnik scare in the 1950s managed to put a man on the moon, but has, strategic considerations to one side, done little or nothing for the well-being of the average American. One of Professor Keeley's most fascinating revelations is the astonishing success of promoters of publicly funded science and technology in bending history to suit their prejudices. The advance of the privately funded British science has for 200 years gone hand in hand with constant predictions of decline. The experience of post-war Japan was comprehensively falsified. In fact, Japanese government support for R&D has almost everywhere proved counterproductive. Again, Germany's post-war success was not due to government, but due to the state's abandonment of so-called, quote, Rhenish capitalism, end quote. And again, there's that, 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 that uh, principle. Whenever you put a, uh, have to put a, uh, um, an adjective in front of the word capitalism, then it probably isn't capitalism. With its cartels, tariffs, and subsidies, yeah, that's capitalism, all right. And the adoption of the 
ordo-liberalism of Ludwig Erhard, who established an independent central bank, reduced government controls, and liberalized trade, end quote. So that's what Peter Foster has to say about that book. Now, of course, you've got closed to scientific debate Al Gore science, which is becoming the norm for government science initiatives, despite all appearances. And, you know, in my scientific and uh, technology newspaper clipping file folder, I have a litany of scientific and technological disasters created by government. Brought some of them with me, but I don't have time to go through all of them today because we want to get on. And if I have time at the end of the show, we'll give you some more of my own current disasters in terms of this. But right now we're going to take a quick break. And, oh, by the way, the next thing you're going to hear, which is also pertinent to this point, is, um, you know, you don't want people like the government doing this stuff. I mean, remember, he who pays a piper calls a tune. And the tune the government is playing is not the tune that the scientific community is playing. And if you really want to see how science can be brought down to the most base of motivations, just listen in to this following clip from the John Stewart Show, which was aired on March 2nd of this month. And I think the rest will speak for itself. And on the other side, we'll come back and we'll be talking about AIG. The president of the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, he is also co-chair of President Obama's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. His new book is called The Art and Politics of Science. Please welcome Harold Varmus, sir. How are you? Come and sit. Thanks for joining us. Did I get in that, that, that you won the Nobel Prize? Did I mention uh, that? I think you forgot it. You have a lot of things to mention. You won the Nobel Prize. I did. Oh. That was a long time ago, though. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't count anymore. And you, you headed the uh, National Institute of Health. I did. For so that was, was that uh, during that the Clinton years? Clinton administration, yeah. And now you're back sitting on this uh, scientific Well, board. I'm still back in New York, happily, staying here in New York. But I, but I am uh, acting along with my two co-chairs as, as an advisor. To it's the interesting. You were advising the government on science during the Clinton years, and now you're doing it with the Obama years. There seems to be an eight-year gap. There was a gap. There, there was a gap. What, yeah. what happened to science during those years? <laughs> well, it wasn't entirely mistreated, but it was often misused. And we didn't have a leader who paid attention to, to science and didn't have innate curiosity, didn't manifest a, a connection, an understanding of the connection between science and what the country's about. We're in big trouble right now as a country, and uh, our new president recognizes that the things that we need to do solve our energy problems, improve health care, improve our educational system, uh, pay attention to the climate. These are things that scientists can help with. Uh, when Obama, during the non-State of the Union address, said, we're going to cure cancer, now this is your specialty, did you go, he said, huh? Or had he spoken with you about that and you had suggested to him that that was possible in our lifetimes? Well, like many people who have a relative who dies of cancer, he cares about this disease. And if I were advising him about that speech, which I was not, I would have said, you know, we're not likely to have one cure for cancer. We're going to have cures for many different kinds of cancer. It's a collection of diseases. Paying attention to cancer is important, but as you know from having a few moments looking at my book, uh, one of the problems that... that... <laughs> Sir, don't, don't be modest. <laughs> I, I'm flattered. As I know you, from you curling it. up at the lake house by the fire <laughs> with your book. We have to acknowledge as scientists that, that science does depend upon the political process. We get our money from the government. The government is representing people. People care about diseases. Uh, and what's awkward is when 
the, the demands are in excess of the opportunities to do useful science. Does eight years in the wilderness do real damage to science? Does eight years, yes. you know, ha having eight years of, I mean, you, you think because about the Middle we, Ages. Because uh, a number of things have happened that, are, that aren't good. One is that, uh, that science budgets have declined over the last several years. Um, they're, the economic meltdown, the bad, you know, the bad shape our country's in is, is, uh, is a real problem. You know, you asked about the, the effect of the meltdown on science. And while there is the potential for dragging some people off Wall Street, to do science, you need money to do science, and the meltdown is very bad for that. Now, there is money in this stimulus package that will be helpful in restoring um, science. Lastly, AIG, after receiving billions in taxpayer bailout money, the company announced that their executives will still receive close to half a billion dollars in bonuses. And now the government wants the money back. And I have to say, th this story ignites a passion in me. Yeah. And you know what it means when a news story ignites my passion. Right, Tariq? I think it means you're about to slow jam the news, Jimmy. Yeah, you know that's what I want. I want to slow jam the news right now. Hit it, fellas. Turn off the lights. I want to lay you down. We can talk about AIG. The mood seems so right, girl. Take off that gown. So we can talk about AIG. Everyone, Japanese yen, Chinese yuan, even the British pound. All insured by AIG. It's a big problem if they're insolvent. Hi, I'm Jimmy, the Sultan of Attraction, an expert on liquidity. But can we talk about AIG? We gave him our tax dollars so the insurance giant could avoid collapse. And then they gave it all to Goldman Sachs. $60 billion losses, their balance sheets is a mess. But they still gave out bonus checks. Politicians and bankers and bitches ain't wrong. been bad. Time for Obama give him a spanking. Calling Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke. Failed investment agreements don't make for a happy home. I want my whistle blown. Whistleblowers, come on. If someone Ooh, at AIG yeah. is willing to expose themselves, I want you to blow that whistle. Ooh, blow yeah. it hard. Big bonuses come on. to executives. We say enough is Get rough on them, Obama, and don't Ooh, stop yeah. until they get it up. Hey, she likes it rough. They want it rough. They want it rough. They like it rough. They made it rough on me, and now we got to be rough on them. And that is how we slow jam the news. Oh, my, that was funny. That's Jimmy Fallon, of course, uh, the new late-night talk show host. Actually, that was aired uh, just minutes after the live interview um, with Jay Leno and Barack Obama, which you'll be hearing a clip from very shortly. I haven't got much to say about this AIG thing, by the way, other than I think it means anger over intervention of government, but people are really angry at AIG. 
saw this National Post cartoon, one AIG manager standing there looking at his superior, and he says, uh, but I've got a wife and a kid and a yacht and a country house and a place in France and dot, 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 you know. Ah, but what's the real story? And what should the government really do? AIG bonuses should be paid, argues Terence Corcoran in his March 17 National Post editorial, and he says, There's no need to repeat here the distorted content and historical tone of the AIG explosion. What is worth repeating, however, are some of the facts behind the AIG bonus payments. The attack on executive compensation, Wall Street bonuses, and bankers is largely without merit. A trumped-up attack on the private sector, on markets, and capitalism to overshadow the real causes of the global financial crisis. In recent weeks, reports from the U.S. Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke, the International Monetary Fund, and former Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan added to the already mountainous body of evidence that massive government failure created a monetary and policy drive house of cards, driven house of cards. The buildup of systemic risk, the, uh, the rising odds that the entire system might crash, took place beyond the ability or even the responsibility of any one private bank or insurance company. No bankers or AIG executives are responsible for systemic risk. Botched regulations, distorting accounting, distorted accounting rules, misguided monetary policy, overstimulative government policy, the list of state policy failure behind the crisis is long and much more significant than any of the individual deals done by AIG financial products. In AIG's case, Mr. Obama is punishing AIG staff for massive global government failure. In fact, in two separate, and that's the end of that, but in two separate articles, I got one here from Associated Press in the, in the Free Press. Um, here's Ben Bernanke saying that regulators, regulators must make sure financial companies have sufficient capital cushion against potential losses. <laughs> Hello, and who is this talking in this one? This is Alan Greenspan. What does he say that should be done? The solutions for the financial market failures revealed by the crisis are higher capital requirements and a wider prosecution of fraud, not increased micromanagement by government entities. And that's exactly what we have been saying here on this show since day one. But because the bonuses were legal and upfront, they couldn't be forced back. But thanks to already the unlimited and abusive power of the United States government, apparently it's also legal to target select individuals for moral punishment using the nation's tax laws. This is a perfectly natural extension, I think, of having what are called progressive tax rates. Once you no longer treat everyone equally under the taxation laws, you're free to progress toward any select targets who compete or disagree with the ruling party in power. In a London Free Press article with the heading, 90% huge tax slapped on bailout bonuses, the article notes that the American bill would impose a 90% tax on bonuses given to employees with family incomes above 250000 U.S., so in other words, executives with spouses who earn their own income will be punished more than executives who are single. I suppose that's the anti-family streak coming out in the U.S. Democrats. I don't know what that is. Or maybe, just maybe it's their own guilt at being the specific ones responsible for, quote, removing a provision originally contained in stimulus legislation to ban such bonuses, end quote. Nah, it couldn't be that. Now, we could go today. U.S. President Obama appeared on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, an event which found itself prominently displayed on the front page of the National Post on March 20th, and which probably didn't hurt Jay Leno's ratings either. What you're about to hear is an outtake of that interview, and on The Tonight Show, Obama was the only talk show guest of that evening, and occupied the better part of a half hour of the live broadcast. I have to admit, 
He was both fun and, and funny uh, to watch, though at the same time, what he had to say about his plans with AIG and the economy made me kind of cringe in abject horror. So listen carefully to what you are about to hear. I must commend Jay Leno for how he handled the interview and managed, as you'll hear by the end of this clip, which was the last five minutes preceding the commercial break. Leno asks an incredibly significant and profound question. And when we return on the other side of our own break for some very important ads, take note of how Obama avoids answering Leno's question and what he deflects his attention to. And we'll be at back right after this. Let me ask you about this. Uh, I know you are... Uh, I know you are angry, because, you know, doing what I do, you kind of st study body language a little bit. And you look very angry about these bonuses. Actually stunned. Uh, stunned. I mean, stunned is the word. Tell people what happened. Just I know people have been over it. Just... Well, well, look, here's what happened. You've got a company, AIG, which used to be just a regular old insurance company. And they insured a whole bunch of stuff, and they were very profitable, and it was a good, solid company. Then they decided, some smart person decided, let's put a hedge fund on top of the insurance company. And let's sell uh, these derivative products to banks all around the world, which are basically guarantees or insurance policies on all these subprime mortgages. And this smart person said, you know, none of these uh, things are going to go bust. This subprime thing, it's a great deal. You can make a lot of profit. So they sold a whole bunch of them, billions and billions of dollars. And what happened is, is that when people started going uh, bust on subprime mortgages, you had... $30 worth of debt on every dollar worth of mortgage, and the whole house of cars just started falling down. So the problem with AIG was that it owed so much uh, and was tangled up with so many banks and institutions that if you had allowed it to just liquidate, to go into bankruptcy, it could have brought the whole financial system down. So it was the right thing to do to intervene in AIG. Now, the question is, who in the right mind when your company is going bust, decides we're going to be paying a whole bunch of bonuses to people. And that, I think, speaks to a broader culture that existed on Wall Street, where I think people just had this general attitude of entitlement, where we must be the best and the brightest. We deserve $10 million or $50 million or $100 million payouts. Right. Uh, and you know, the, the, the immediate bonuses that went to AIG are a problem. But the larger problem is we've got to get back to an attitude where people know enough is enough. And people have a sense of responsibility, and they understand that their actions uh, are going to have an impact on everybody. Uh, and if we can get back to those values that built America, then I think we're going to be okay. Well, you know, it's interesting. When you said... Um... <laughs> It's like I had to laugh the other day when the CEO of AIG said, okay, I've asked him to give half the bonuses back. Now, if you rob a bank and you go into court and you go, Your Honor, I'm going to give you half the money back. And, and, and they seem stunned that we're not jumping at this wonderful well, offer. Well, you know, the, the only place I think that might work is in Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Let me ask you this. Now, they, I heard them say, well, one of the problems is these, it, it's contractual. Right. And if we don't pay these bonuses, well, right. they can sue us. All the time, people say, so sue me. So sue me. I right. mean, the federal government is in debt a trillion dollars. We're broke. Right. Sue us. I, I, I... Sue <laughs> <laughs> you can't... Sue me. Yeah, we're judgment-proof. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 in fairness, I think that part of the calculation they were making was the way the contracts were written said, if you don't pay us immediately, 
then we can claim three times as much as we were owed under the bonuses. And so they were making a legal calculation. Okay. And, and their legal judgment was not necessarily wrong. But there's a moral and an ethical uh, aspect to this as well. And I think that's what has gotten everybody so fired up. The, the main thing, we're, we're going to do everything we can to, to see if we can get these bonuses back. But I think the most important thing that we can do is make sure that we put in a bunch of financial regulatory mechanisms to prevent companies like an AIG holding the rest of us hostage. Because that's, that's the real problem. The problem is not just what's happened over the last six months. The problem is what was happening for years where people were able to take huge excessive risks with other people's money, putting the entire financial system at risk, and there were no checks. There were no balances. There were, was nobody overseeing the process. And so what we're going to be moving very aggressively on, even as we try to fix the current mess, mm -hmm. is make sure that before somebody makes a bad bet, you say, hold on, you can't do that. Well, here's something that kind of scared me. Uh, today they pass this thing that says we're going to tax 90% of these bonuses. And the part that scares me is, if the, I mean, you're a good guy. If the government decides they don't like a guy, yeah. all of a sudden, hey, we're going to tax you, and they boom and it passes. I mean, that seems a little scary as a taxpayer. They can just decide. Can we take it. We, we want to take a break. One last time when we come back. Okay, hold that answer. I will. I, I, it's a, I've got a good answer too. I, I mentioned that they had just passed this, uh, this new bill, which will tax them 90%. And I said it was frightening to me as an American that Congress, whoever could decide, I don't like that group, let's pass yeah. a law and tax them at 90%. Well, look, uh, I understand Congress's frustrations, and they're responding to, I think, everybody's anger. But I think that the best way to handle this is to make sure that you've closed the door before the horse. A horse gets out of the barn. Right. And, and what happened here was the money's already gone out and people are scrambling to try to find ways to get back at them. Uh, it, the, the change I'd like to see in terms of tax policies uh, is that uh, we have a system going back to where we were back in the 1990s where you and I, who were doing pretty well, pay a little bit more to pay for health care, to pay for energy, to make sure that kids can go to college who aren't as fortunate as, as our uh, you know, as, as my kids might be. Uh, th those are the kinds of measured steps that we can take. Right. Uh, but th the important thing over the next several months is making sure that we don't uh, lurch from thing to thing. Yeah. But we, we try to make steady progress, build a foundation for long-term economic growth. That, that's what I think the American people expect. Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. I'm Bob Metz, and I'll be with you from now till noon. Well, there you have it. So Obama's big plan is to tax the rich, just like Karl Marx, even though it sounds as funny as Groucho Marx these days. But of course, as we keep hearing, Obama is no socialist, as our socialist political commentators like to remind us constantly and repeatedly, because that's what you have to do when somebody's not something, you know. 
I want to thank listener Glenn for sending me this article. I don't know how long ago you sent it to me, Glenn, but it's dated February 24th, 2009, written by Harry Binswanger. And Mr. Professor Binswanger is a longtime associate of Ayn Rand, is professor of philosophy at the Objectivist Academic Center of the Ayn Rand Institute. And in this article, he writes, the economic stimulus is a myth. He says there's no such thing as a stimulus to the economy. The closest you could get to that in reality would be a retrenchment of government controls and looting, deregulation and spending cuts. But even those are not stimuli, but a, a lessening of destruction. If I'm extracting a quart of blood per hour from you, and I reduce that to taking a pint of your blood, that's not giving you a stimulus. If I've tied your arms and legs, and I untie one leg, that's not giving you a stimulus. But such redu reductions in damage aren't even on the table, aren't even being considered, so I include that point just for completeness, says Ben Swanger. And he says, a note that any tax reductions not accompanied by spending cuts are not reductions of damage, just shifts in where the blood is being drained from. What's actually being called an economic stimulus is a melange of programs to increase the damage. They're taking the person tied and being bled and giving him a shot of adrenaline to make him quiver and make his blood flow out faster. The stimulus package is premised on the consumptionist idea that spending creates wealth. And you're hearing this from almost every news media outlet around us right now. But spending only transfers wealth. Production creates wealth. Neither buying nor selling creates goods. Goods are created by the physical alteration of matter. Also, wealth, as opposed to just products people don't want, requires that that is what is physically produced is valued by the buyers. The significance of that addition will, be, of, will become apparent later. This is something that I always talk about, too, why everything has to be voluntary. Keynesian economics, consumptionist economics, holds that spending can create wealth when there are idle factors of production, people out of work, and factories with a lot of unused capacity. Keynesians reason, if these people were working and the factories were calling idle machinery into use, more products would be made. In a sense, that's true, but what is ignored is the reason why the factors of production are idle. There is a reason. It's not just that people have gone crazy and only government officials are able to remain sane. For instance, I'm now trying to spend less because I can't afford as much as I could, or thought I could, before the crisis. So what's the Keynesian solution? Fool me into thinking I can afford more than I can. Print up new, unbacked money, and get, get it to me so that I will mistakenly think I can afford to buy more again. To the extent the stimulus package is getting inflated currency to the consumers, it is attempting to fake them into making purchases that they cannot actually afford. Now take the business side of things. A car manufacturer has machinery laying idle. Why? Because they judge that they can't make a profit by using it to make more cars. The stimulus solution is to fool them into thinking there is a demand for those cars so that they will produce them. It is supposed to work because the consumers will be fooled into thinking they can afford to buy them. But the double fake theory does not work. There's been no change in external reality. There's only an illusion created by expanded fiat money. The consumers can't actually afford to buy the cars, and the actual profits of the car producers isn't higher than it was. Yet car makers' nominal revenues in dollars goes up, but not their actual receipts in real terms. And their costs go up as the newly printed money circulates 
through the system. We're starting to see some of that now already. For those who are fooled by the inflation, the net result in real, not dollar terms, is that they make purchases they can't afford and the producers are, fo- are fooled into producing at a loss. The consumers have seen their real wealth shrink because real wealth is a matter of their own hierarchy of values. Suppose my hierarchy of values is that I value having a new computer above getting a high-definition TV. If I'm fooled by the stimulus, I might think I can afford both. So I buy both. But now prices rise and I find I can't afford to make my rent, something that I valued much higher than either the TV or the computer. So now I have to pack up my TV and computer and move to a smaller apartment. Had I been undeceived about what I could afford, I would have bought the new computer, passed on the TV, and stayed in my present apartment. Net result, by being faked into buying both the TV and the computer, I am worse off. Worse off than I would have been had I stayed in the present apartment with a new computer but keeping my old TV. The same applies to business. If they're deceived into bringing idle machinery into production, they end up worse off than if they had realized that their expanded dollar receipts are worth no more than their old receipts and that their costs are now rising, as are the interest payments on their borrowing. We saw all this happen in the 70s, but that's too long ago for concrete-bound pragmatists. Another point. Savings are spent. All the money that is not kept in cash balances is spent. The crucial issue is not spending, but the nature of the spending. Is money spent on production or on consumption? Money spent on consumption is a dead end as far as creating wealth is concerned. You buy bread and you eat it. The money you spent goes to the baker of the bread, but the bread is gone. If you save the money, it means it's invested, and that means it's spent on production to pay for wages for bakery employees who then buy bread. Then they eat the bread, but the bread is eaten by an employee. It is a payment for his labor in creating more bread, and you are paid interest out of the profit. So in either case, money is spent to buy bread that is eaten. The only issue is whether the bread goes to sustain a worker making more bread than he eats, since he's hired at a profit, or whether if the bread is eaten with no added production. Productive expenditure makes a profit, on average. Consumptive expenditure just uses up products. To be sure, there's nothing wrong with using up products. We produce them in order to consume them for our happiness. But the consumptionist school imagines that savings are not spent at all. The adherents of this school, which includes everyone with a public voice today, imagine that savings are tucked under a mattress or hoarded. In fact, however, savings are invested in production. It is amazing that in this crisis, which is a crisis of overconsumption, overborrowing, too little liquidity, the government's idea of a stimulus is to encourage more consumption, more borrowing, and less liquidity. It is especially amazing when all these points were known and well explicated by the classical economists from Adam Smith on. What is needed for recovery is not the chimera of stimulus, provided by faking both people's incomes and the true supply of capital, but a return to reality. And that means liquidation, liquidation, liquidation. And that liquidation is exactly what the stimulus package is designed to prevent. End quote. And that was by Dr. Uh, ben Swanger, who was with uh, the Ayn Rand Institute, Institute from back in February. So basically, he lays to, uh, just, you know, devastates the whole concept of economic stimulus and uses the same blood approach. You know, you're just bleeding the patient again, stealing from one person or even stealing from the same person and giving back to him. And then again, you know, there's the whole issue of taxing the rich, which is, of course, Obama's plan. 
not his plan, really. It's the plan of a lot of politicians, has been for ages. And, of course, taxing the rich is nothing new in politics. As John Stossel, way back in 2004, when the tax rates you are about to hear about were only about 1% or 2% different from what they are now, and he broadcast the following news item on 2020. And when we come back after this break, we'll be turning our eyes to the CBC. When it comes to income taxes, the rich don't pay their fair share. A lot of you may buy that. And now I have a special message for the special interests. The Democratic presidential candidates keep saying that. We want our country back for ordinary Americans. The first one willing to say it to me was the Reverend Al Sharpton. Well, the rich do not pay their share. That's a widespread belief. But do the politicians even know how much of the income tax burden the rich pay now? The top 1% in this country pays very much less than 10%, very much less than 5%. So what's fair? The top 1% should pay 10% of America's income taxes, 20%? No, they should pay somewhere around 15%. They don't pay 5%. Anybody could see that as unequal and unfair. So they should pay 15%, he says. And the richest 1% now pay less than 10%. Then he said less than 5%. But that's so silly because, and I bet most of you don't know this, the IRS says the richest 1% of taxpayers already pay 34%, twice what Sharpton wanted them to pay. The Reverend well, barely reacted when I told him. They're already paying 34%. No, I think that if you deal with the quality of their lives... He quickly the changed the subject. The he never would admit really how far do. off he was. Now, you may still feel the rich should pay more. After all, they have so much. But let's remember the facts. The top 1% of Americans, that's those who earn about $300,000 a year, pay 34%, more than a third of all income taxes. And the top 5%, those making over 125000 pay more than half. So remember that next time you hear a candidate saying he'll sock it to the rich. television has been on the air for over 50 years and throughout that time they've done an excellent job year after year of telling us how they've been on the air for over 50 years <laughs> you've got to give the CBC credit though it started from nothing and now it's the leading public broadcaster in the entire country yeah it's amazing what you can accomplish when you have a license to take the money from the people instead of earning it there's a hole in the bucket, dear Liza, and everyone's talking about bailing out the B CBC. You, you know, the flood of sentimentality towards uh, Canada's leading public broadcaster has been quite a surprise to me, given that as a consumer, I've got to admit, I don't think I ever watch CBC TV or listen to CBC radio. Um, I do a bit as a broadcaster and political activist. I have to on some level, but as a consumer, I, I have to think almost never. Uh, I notice here Conrad Black refers to the CBC as a first-class voice, arguing that broadcaster is now a necessary instrument of public policy. And he has all kinds of suggestions as to what CBC should air, such as, quote, the CBC should buy discovery and history and National Geographic Channel-style documentary material. There are immense quantities of such film available, and it's very often quite engrossing and not expensive to string together, end quote. I don't know where he's going with that. 
On the other hand, you've got NDP heritage critic Charlie Angus, who wrote in the National Post on March 18th, and by the way, whose idea is being discussed today (laughs) in the news, quote, Good television is very expensive to produce, and the CBC finds itself in a no-win game. If the broadcaster goes for niche programming that fits its mandate, it would face a drop in ad share and political condemnation for not proving its worth through a larger audience. The alternative is to rely on American programming in a head-to-head primetime ratings war against high-powered U.S. simulcasts. But such programming reduces political support for the corporation. The simple solution is a medium-term loan against future appropriations, end quote, uh, to save the CBC. Don Martin, writing on this subject in the March 17th National Post, noting the $1 billion per year the CBC already receives from the public purse, says the CBC should be thankful, quote, that Heritage Minister James Moore is in charge of its file. Moore is no burning right-wing ideologue, there we go again, and while new while uh, news media savvy supports the CBC's continued right to exist with public subsidies. His only quibble is the form it will take, his government's preference being for a PBS model broadcaster that doesn't sell ads, a network backed by aggressive viewer fundraising that sticks to Canadian news, drama, and children's content in both languages while reaching Aboriginal and remote markets, end quote. And he says that's only a quibble. Private broadcasters may get help, says the Sun Media Report in the London Free Press, March 19th. And it reports that the Conservative government is considering help for struggling private television broadcasters as the CBC finalizes plans to freeze executive salaries and slash (coughs) bonuses, (coughs) don't want to talk about that, to deal with its own multi-million dollar shortfall. Heritage Minister James Moore told the Canadian press that the government is looking for loosening regulations and possible tax changes to help CanWest and other private broadcasters, which have seen advertising revenues drop and have closed local stations across the country to make ends meet. And that's the end of that quote. Now, uh, you know, everybody's arguing about how to save the CBC and why do we need the CBC. I've never understood why. They they say it's there for for unity. uh, Unity. Of what? If if there's any element in our society that has been divisive to this country in the broadcast range, I'd have to put the CBC at the top of the list. So whatever unity value it has to whomever, I don't know. It's just, uh, it's it's permanent corporate welfare. You want to save the CBC? Here's my basic suggestions. Number one, cut the umbilical cord from the Canadian taxpayer. Just do it. Two, Give them the freedom. And by freedom, you always mean freedom from government, not, not these uh, conservatives who want you to, to provide Aboriginal and remote and all this. Nothing wrong with that programming, but you can't do your whole mandate on that kind of thing. And, of course, uh, to do whatever it takes to survive. If that means having American content 90% of the time so you can privately fund high-quality Canadian programming only 10% of the time, so be it. I don't see a problem with that. And, you know, it's ironic that as so many taxpayers and voters are crying out against one-time bailouts, okay, like AIG, and maybe it's two or three times. But think about this. The CBC has been operating on a century of stimulus bailouts year after year, systemic. And, uh, you know, they might also consider uh, ceasing their destructive communist tendencies, but that's a whole other story. But um, really, you know, their ideas will not survive in the real world of philosophy, science, and technology. Ryan has given me the cue in there. Let's go, Ryan. We'll take it out of here. And we'll hope you enjoy join us again next week as we continue our journey 
in the right direction. So we'll see you then. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, and think right. Take care. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Right, one last question. Now, the, when is the dog coming? I keep hearing about the dog. It seems to me, the, when was the dog supposed to be there by? Wasn't it? I thought it was like as soon as they moved. L listen, this is Washington. <laughs> That was a campaign promise. Oh, wow! <laughs>